0: Today, I'm going to continue our theme through Advent, talking about King Jesus, but I'm going to do this in a little bit of a different way, in that we're not just going to talk about his birth. We're going to kind of um, move from the fact that he was born and ask the question, why? What did he come to do? We, we are so grateful that he came, and we know that he came to be our Savior, and he died on the cross, but it's a little more complex than that. Um, He came to be our king, and that really connects to to our series in Judges that we'll be going back to in another couple of of weeks. But when you get to the end of the book of Judges, here's what's kind of happened. The Israelites have entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua in the book of Joshua. And then there's this 400-year period that's covered by the book of Judges, where regionally the, the people of God are falling into idolatry, they are falling away from God. God sends discipline their way in the form of um, other nations that, that oppress them. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance. God sends a deliverer, but the cycle just continues again and again for 400 years, and we're halfway through those cycles as we've studied through the book of Judges. But when you get to the end of the book, there's, a, there's something that points us really forward when you get to the end of the book. You read four times at the end of the book, in, in Judges 17, 6, it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Um, I grew up reading the King James Version, and that version of that verse is, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody had their, They were their own standard for truth. <laughs> um, everyone did as they saw fit. You were, you were your own standard. And, and what happens in the book of Judges is it leads to just tremendous decay, tremendous um, conflict and chaos. And by the time we get to the end of this book, um, it it is four stories that I just don't even want to tell. They're so horrible Um, because there there was no true king in the land. In the very next chapter, it just simply says, in those days, Israel had no king. And, and, and kind of what's being set up here in those verses, it happens again in the very next chapter. Israel had no king. It's they had these judges, but that's not the answer to their problem. These judges are more like warlords, these chieftains who are regional um, military warriors who deliver them from the oppression. But the, the chieftains were not the answer. They had no king. Um, and, and the book ends. The very last verse of the book says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Um, They needed a king. And, And what's going to happen in the very next book of the Bible, after Judges, is Ruth. And Ruth gets us from, literally, the first verse of Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. And four chapters later, at the very end of the book of Ruth, the last word of the book of Ruth is David. So there was no king. The next one gets us to David But he's not the guy we're looking for either. (laughs) He he establishes a kingship that God is going to honor, but he's not the king. We're actually looking forward to another king. So the book of Judges is kind of setting things up to say, warlords, chieftains, military heroes, superheroes, um, these guys are not the answer. You need a king, but you don't need a human king. You need a different kind of king. And that's what points us forward to the coming of of Jesus the king, who we celebrated his birth just just yesterday. Um, But there's more to what Jesus does than just being born as a baby to give us something to celebrate. I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, um, Dallas Seminary, where I went to school. Um, Part of their doctrinal statement says this, We believe that all the scriptures center about the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work, in his first and second coming. It's not just his first coming as a baby when he was born that we celebrated. The whole program of God centers on his first coming, where he came to redeem, but also his second coming, where he's going to come back to rule and to set everything right and to judge the world. And hence, there's no portion, even the Old Testament, that is properly understood, read, or understood until it leads to him. Everything leads to Jesus Christ. Now, I want to spend a moment here. I'm going to give you a lot of quotes, but my purpose here is to overwhelm you with, this is all about Christ, but it's all about Christ, not just being born, but Christ in all that he does in his redemptive and his restoring and his ruling work. Um, The whole Christian story is about Christ, but it's not just his birth. It's what he does and our response to what he does. Um. I have a book on my shelf. It's an old paperback. I looked to see if I could recommend it, but it's not available unless you wanted to spend like $187 for a a used copy of this. Uh, But in a book called Christianity is Christ, W.H. Griffith Thomas says this, Christianity is the only religion in the world which rests on the person of its founder. Christianity is so extricably bound up with Christ that our view of the person of Christ involves and determines our view of Christianity. What you think about Christ... And if you just leave him as a baby, that leaves you in a certain view of Christianity. Yeah, I'm a Christian because I believe in the Christmas story. But if you understand a much bigger view of Christ, and you understand why he came, and the big thing, both first and second coming, that changes your understanding and your view of Christianity. Charles Ryrie says this, Thus the incarnation, Christ taking on flesh, has ramifications in relation to our knowledge of God, to our knowledge, to ourselves, to our salvation, to our daily living, to our pressing needs, and to the future. It truly is the central fact of history. We don't really understand who God is apart from the coming of Christ. We don't understand our need apart from the coming of Christ. We don't understand the magnitude of our salvation apart from Christ. We don't understand um, what the future holds apart from the coming of Christ. Millard Erickson, another theologian, says this, When we come to the study of the person and work of Christ, we are at the very center of Christian theology. For since Christians are by definition believers and followers of Christ, their understanding of Christ must be central and determinative of the very character of the Christian faith. Again, this is beyond the birth. (laughs) Uh, To be a a Christian is not just to believe in the birth of Christ— and to be a faithful Christian is not just to believe in his birth and Easter, his death, but it's to understand the whole work of what Christ has done. British theologian Alistair McGrath puts it this way, I really like how this lands. <laughs> uh, he, talking about the place of Christ in Christianity, he says Jesus Christ is the historical point of departure for Christianity. Like Historically, everything starts with his birth. Jesus Christ reveals God... We, we understand God because we see Jesus. We understand his justice because he paid for our sins. We understand his grace because he paid for our sins. We understand God because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the bearer of salvation. He brings our salvation and all the gifts that go with it. And then I love this one. Jesus Christ defines the shape of the redemptive life. If you've entered into the redemptive life, you've, you've accepted his birth as the Son of God, his death for our sins, you've entered into that redemptive life. You've accepted his salvation by grace through faith, based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, validated by the resurrection. If you've embraced that, then Jesus Christ becomes the shape of how you live that out. I love how that pulls together. Now, how, how, can, how can you frame all of this? Well, you spend the rest of your life trying to figure out what are the full implications of Christ's birth, But there's one way that scholars have put it together that I think is a helpful pattern. It started um, with Eusebius of Caesarea. Uh, He was a church historian in the third century. He lived near the end of the 200s and into the 300s. Really was the first person who started writing about church history. And he was the first person to frame the ministry of Christ in terms of what's called the threefold offices. Now, this threefold perspective. That we're going to look at today—prophet, priest, and king—is such a big deal that there's a name for it. Okay, so it's kind of like this. There, there's—I mean, you. How many people are Razorback fans? Okay, you Razorback fan, go ahead and admit it. Um, if you're a Razorback fan, there are certain events and certain things that happen that you give them a name—the Miracle on Markham. You know it. You know the whole thing now because it's so special, you give it a name, okay? Now, let's be theological again. Come back to church. Stop thinking about the bowl game. Um, There are certain things that that happen in Scripture that are given a name. Mary's poem, When Christ is Born, is called The Magnificent. Um, When Abraham sacrifices Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22. It's called the Adikah. They're so special, they're given a name. Uh, these, this perspective of looking at the ministry of Christ, taking it beyond just his birth, and putting it in the in the realm of prophet and priest and king that we will look at today, it has a name. Greg Allison, who teaches uh, theology at Southern Seminary, says this, Most commonly, people view the saving work of Jesus Christ in terms of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. While these were certainly the focus of his mission, Christ's work cannot be limited to them. The munus triplex, the munus triplex, or the threefold offices of Christ underscores the multifaceted nature of his work of salvation. This seeing Jesus in his work as prophet, priest, and king, it has a name. The Latin term munus triplex um, started with Eusebius, kind of became super famous with John Calvin, but now all theologians, all of my theology books have a chapter that's on the threefold work of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And so what I want to do today is, is just kind of briefly run through this. Um, we could talk about it for a long time, but just kind of establish the, the work of the one who was born that we celebrated yesterday, um, The the work of that person is a threefold work. There's a lot more you can say, but this is a helpful way to look at it. And throughout history, it's been looked at this way a number of times. Jesus Christ is a prophet. He's a priest, and he's a king. Let me just preview, and we'll be able to get through this quicker if I do. He's a prophet because he brings God's message to us. That's what a prophet did. A prophet brought the word of God to the people. Um. Prophets were not very popular in the Old Testament. Uh, prophets, because they brought the word, um, were often bringing a word of judgment, and a, they were just not popular people. When the prophets showed up, um, they were usually kind of wild characters, um, and, and you wanted to listen to them, but you usually didn't like what they said <laughs> um, because they were bringing judgment before they brought hope. Now, they brought hope, But the hope only comes after you repent because of the judgment that's needed. Um, So the prophet brings God's message to the people. The priest is really the opposite of that. The priest is the person who brings the people into God's presence. He's the person who's going to mediate the sacrifices, who's going to guide you through the sacrifices, and who's going to say, here's what you need to do as a priest. You you need to do this to be able to come into the presence of God. People liked priests way more than prophets. By the way, the kings love the priests in the Old Testament. The kings, really difficult relationship with the prophets. Uh, Because the prophets are usually coming to say, you're the man when they're talking about sin. Uh, But the priests, and they were... And because they have such a good heart, they, they want to bring people. They're they're sometimes easily corrupted, um, because they're they're very liked. Now the king is the person who has all authority and all rule, and Jesus Christ is the only person who encapsulates all three offices. There were prophets, there were priests, there were kings. In the Old Testament, there's never a prophet and a priest and a king. Sometimes they, they, you can get a prophet who becomes a priest, or you can actually have a king who's a priest. Um, but if you start to put the three of them together, and there's a couple of people who want to do it, they get judged before they're able to pull it off. Um, Jesus is the only one who completely fulfills God's ministry of prophet, priest, and king. So let's look at them one by one. First of all, Jesus Christ is a prophet bringing God's revelation to us. Um, Jesus Christ is, is bringing the message of God. We're going to read here in just a minute. He's the word from God. He's the word in that he's the message. He's the revelation. And not only does he bring the word of God when he speaks, he brings it just by who he is. He communicates. And in that way, he's a prophet and he's the best prophet ever. He's, he's the final word and he's the fulfilling word. He's the final word that clarifies everything, and he's he's the fulfillment of the word. He brings to fulfillment everything, and he actually fulfills all that the the word requires. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be in Hebrews a lot when we look at the ministry of Christ. But Hebrews chapter 1, the very beginning of the book. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, and in various ways. This is how God speaks. It's through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, his character, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins through his death and resurrection, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven so that he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. God spoke in a lot of different ways. Prophets, dreams, visions, um, stories written down. God spoke in all these different ways. But in these last days, his final word came through Jesus Christ. And and you kind of get this idea that Jesus says, here's what I have to say to you. And see it. See me live it out. And then he sits down at the right hand of God because he's done. He it's the final word. You don't need to know anything else. You don't need extra revelation to be able to walk with God. All you need is Jesus Christ. He's the message of God's justice. He's the message of God's grace. He's the message of the example you should live by. He's he's the final word. He's the ultimate word. He's the complete word. Of this is what it means. God loved you so much, he sent his perfect son to satisfy his justice and graciously offer you the free gift of salvation by faith. That is the message that he offers. And then he lives a life because he fulfills the word. In Matthew chapter 5, do not think, this is Christ speaking, that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of that. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will, be by any, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, you might think that what he would say is, I'm here to fulfill everything the prophets said. And he does say that. But not only does he fulfill everything the prophets say, he fulfills everything the law required. He said, I'm not abolishing the law. I'm telling you this is what it looks like when you really obey it and you really fulfill it. And he, and he says, I'm, I'm going to do this. And you can count on this because God's word, his revelation, that came in a lot of different ways but now ultimately comes from me, it's going to be fulfilled. You can count on it. And, and not one um, small stroke of a pen. Literally, it says not one yod or tilde. Yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Um, in the King James, it was jot or tittle, um, not one, not not one jot, one yod, the, the smallest letter. It looks like um, an apostrophe. N- not one apostrophe or um, a tittle. A, a tittle. The best way I can illustrate it in English is the tittle is the difference between um, a b and an r. It's that one little stroke that okay, it's an r. One little thing makes it a b. Um, it's the, the smallest stroke. Everything down to the minute details, Jesus fulfills of the law and the prophets. I, maybe I should say it this way He fulfills everything in the prophets and the law. He lives it out perfectly. He is God's revelation to us of how much God loves us, what our salvation costs, but also how you should live your life. So I've got three questions to say He is prophet, priest, and king. Is he your prophet, priest, and king? Is he my prophet, priest, and king? If he's the final word, am I listening? Am I listening to that word? Or am I letting the, the words of the world that swirl around me? Uh, am I listening to the, the words of my flesh? Am I letting the words of the culture, um, the, world, the words of the chaos, and, and all the turmoil in the world, are those the words I hear more? Or am I really listening to hear God's word written and God's word lived out perfectly in Jesus Christ. And are you growing in that? Is he is he really a prophet for you in that you listen and it's it's shaping his life in you. He fulfills everything. He says this is what it looks like if you live out all of God's requirements. He is a prophet. He's the final word, he's the fulfilling word. Are we listening? Are we growing? Are we are we becoming more like Christ? And Maybe the start of that, are you aware of how much you're not like Christ? Good grief, I'm so much aware of that in the last three days. (laughs) I still need a salary so I won't tell any stories about the last three days. (laughs) Jesus Christ is also a priest, bringing us into relationship with God. He's a prophet who brings God's word to us, But he's also the priest that brings us into the presence of God. And that is a work that is finished and forever. It never needs to be done again. It is complete. Again, the book of Hebrews is so clear with all of this. Hebrews chapter 10. And by that will, we have been made holy. We've been brought into his presence because the only thing that can come into his presence is holiness. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's finished. Just happened one time. Doesn't have to happen again and again. He's going to make that point. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which could never take away sins. Those sacrifices never were meant to take away sins. They were just symbols that Christ would allow a substitute, and it's your faith. That actually redeemed you even in the Old Testament. But when this priest had offered, this priest being Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because his duties were finished. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. He finished the work. <laughs> it's once for all, one time. Now he's seated because his sacrifice takes care of of our sins. He goes on to say this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, because his sacrifice is is finished, it completed, it covers all of our sins. It covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. His redemptive work is so great, this is another revelation, a word that he brings, that his redemptive priestly work is so great that we now have confidence to enter into the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Because of his sacrifice for us, we actually, no matter what you've done, you have confidence to enter into the holy place. By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full insurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water because his blood cleanses us, because um, we've been washed clean, um, we have full assurance of faith that we can enter into the presence of God because of his redemptive work. Not because we're doing so well, but because of his redemptive work. His, and that work is finished. We don't need any more of it. And, and it lasts forever. Hebrews 7. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. These priests that were offering sacrifices, they, they didn't, couldn't serve forever. They died, and, and they had to get a new priest to do it. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for him. Um, Jesus Christ is a forever priest. His priesthood is different. He, he, he made one sacrifice for all times, and therefore, while he lives forever, that sacrifice counts forever. And you notice the thing there at the end, and as that priest bringing people to God, he intercedes for us. We came across this in our study of Romans chapter 8. Jesus Christ is praying for you every day, Jesus Christ is interceding for us. His blood allows us to go before the presence of God, and and he is, before the presence of God, interceding daily, regularly for us because he's a priest forever. So then my question for us, he is a prophet. Are we listening? Are we obeying? He is a priest. Are you grateful for all that he's done? Are you grateful for the priestly work that your sins are covered and now through faith you have access to God? You can pray at any time and you can walk boldly into the throne. Are you prayerful? Are you you joining him in, in praying for yourself, for others? Because we have access. Are you accessing your access is how I would ask it. You've got access to the throne of God. You've got access to the holy of holies. You you have access to God. Are you are you taking care are are you relying on your own wisdom, your own instincts? Jesus Christ is our prophet, he's our priest. And we've been talking about this the whole time. And he's the king. And, and as the king, he brings authority, he brings rule to the world. And this is where we look forward actually to the second advent. Um, When we talk about the Advent season, um, typically the liturgical calendar, the first three Sundays of Advent, focus on the first Advent, and the the last Sunday of Advent focuses on the second Advent, his second coming. And that's where we're going to focus here now, on that second coming, because everything in the Bible ultimately, not immediately, but ultimately everything leads to Jesus Christ and his complete work in the first and second coming. Now, this rule of this idea of ruling is something that we will see in the future, but we can experience now. Let me show you the future part of that in Revelation, Revelation 19. A vision of the future, however you, however you chop it up. (laughs) We're not going to get into that, but this is future. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. This is not the view of baby Jesus. This is baby Jesus, grown up, now he's the king. He has a name written on him that, does, that no one knows, but he himself, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. So we know this is Jesus, but now this is Jesus' powerful This is Jesus riding out to judge. He came the first time to save. His first coming, focus, redemption. Second coming, focus, establish his rule. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword (laughs) with which to strike down the nations. I'm just, in my mind, I... My chuckle there was just imagining the shift from baby Jesus to this. But this is the magnitude of the work of, of our Savior. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his throne, on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Baby Jesus will come back riding on a white throne on a white horse. He will stand up from next to the throne of God where he's been sitting as he's finished his priestly work. He will come back a second time to establish his rule and his kingship. Now what he's been doing in between is he's been spreading the word of his redemption and asking us to join him in spreading the word of his redemption to every tongue, tribe, and nation. And when the last person is saved, who has been called, when when we have taken this message of the gospel as a witness to the nations, Matthew 24, 14 tells us, says, then the end will come. And when the end comes, this is what it looks like. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords riding on a white horse, ready to judge the world and set everything right. That's the future, but we can participate that in that in the presence. Here's, here's what Colossians tells us. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Live this out. Live, live this Christ-like life. Leave the judgment to him, by the way. Leave the judgment to him so that you can forgive. And and live loving people around you, not being harsh. If somebody's different than you, listen to them first. And then share with them the truth kindly, non-judgmentally. And then he goes on to say this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's the ruler. He will establish his rule, but you can experience that today. You can experience the peace of Christ as you allow his redemptive work and his ruling work to be something he's taking care of. You don't have to do it, you just share the message. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. That, that word means to be at home. Let, let, let this message of Christ and, and all that he is, and maybe um, the munus triplex, the, the threefold offices of Christ, Christ as prophet and priest and king, let that be at home in your life, that you understand that, wow, he brings the message, he takes me into God's presence, and he's here to rule. Let that dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, songs from the, from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let him rule. Let that peace. Let this whole work. Let all of Christ's ministry as prophet and priest and, and king, let, let all of that rule in your hearts. Let that be at home in your life, so that you 're listening you 're accessing the benefits of his priestly work and and you 're submitting to his rule in your life i mean is your worldview right is your worldview determined by Jesus is the king, not money, not you, not the person you 're trying to sway. Is your worldview right that he's the king? And by the way, is your worldview right that he's the only hope for us? Um, There's nothing else that's going to fix the problems of the world. No political movement, no, um, no political party, no changing of the Supreme Court, no decision that can be made by any earthly power is going to fix things. We're just going to make things work. That's my prediction for the world. It's going to get worse. I'm not a prophet, but I'm right. (laughs) It's going to get worse until our prophet, priest, and king comes back and establishes his rule as a benevolent dictator. And as a benevolent dictator, everything will be right. So go ahead and start it now. Okay, Just go ahead and let him rule now. And is your life reflecting his rule? Or does your life reflect um, fear because of what's going on? Or does your life reflect um, uh, things out of whack in your priorities? Which relationships have priority for you? Is it your relationship with Christ? Um, Paul ends, one more theologian says this about the moon is triplex. These three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, and king are the key to the purpose of the Incarnation. It's the reason he came on Christmas Day. His prophetic office was involved with the revealing God's message. The priestly office was related to his saving and intercessory work. His kingly office gave him the right to reign over Israel and the entire earth. All the divine intention of these three perfectly culminated in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's everything is there in Christ. He brings God's word to us and reveals what it looks like to live obedient to him. He brings us to Christ through his redemption, but through his priestly work. And because of all of that cleansing, it allows us to go into the presence of God. And he's the king who's going to set everything right. And he's ruling and reigning and has rightful rulership of the world now. And we can submit to that. Let that rule in our hearts. Let these realities be at home in how we live. So here's how I would bring this all together. Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. Here at the end of the year, or maybe the beginning of the new year, or is he? This is more more of an application message. It probably has felt like an information message. You walk out of here and you've got a Latin term, the moon is triplex. And you're thinking theologically, yes, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Yeah? But here's what I want, want you to walk out with. Is he? Is he your prophet and your priest and your king? N- next steps. Are you listening to and obeying his word? And, and you got a few days to kind of say, well, maybe I'm going to start that differently in January. Or maybe you're going to start that differently on December 27th. Are you listening to and obeying his word? He's God's final message to us. He reveals everything about God's justice and everything about God's grace. He reveals everything about what it looks like to live a life pleasing to God. Are you listening to and obeying his word? Are you appreciating, appreciative for, and living in light of your redemption? Are you appreciative for, of all that God's done for you through Jesus Christ? And are you living in light of that? Which means you can have confidence to enter into the holy place. You can draw near to God. You don't have to be fearful and just trying to stay in the shadows so he doesn't see. You can actually draw near to God and experience his love and forgiveness and his grace and his direction. And then are you prioritizing and living the values of the king? Are, are, you, are you really living like he's the king in your life? Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. Or is he? He is. How we live and how we respond will really determine whether we've heard the word that came and became flesh how we live and how we respond will really determine whether we're actually moving into the presence of God regularly in our life. And, and he is the ruler. How we live and how we prioritize our lives will determine whether he's the king or we're the king.